My name is George. I'm unemployed and I live with my parents. Best pickup line ever. Right there. So I actually never really watched this show, but if I understand it correctly, that character plays very, very well, sort of the over-the-top, stereotypical, absolute loser. I mean, that's what his character is. Nothing goes right, and he says himself, his every instinct, his every decision, his every thought, his every action is just leading him to losery. He's just not making it in life, and so he comes to this epiphany. I am simply going to do the opposite. And I watched a little bit further, and lo and behold, he does the opposite in every single way, and everything actually works out. He goes from a stereotypical loser to a total and utter absolute winner in life. He gets the girl, he gets the job, he gets the car, he gets the money. Everything just seems to go incredibly well for him. The opposite. Today I want to talk to you about the opposite. I think God is going to show you today the opposite. And here's why. Because you came out of your mother's womb running in the wrong direction. And your every instinct, your every thought, decision, action, left to your own devices, will be self-centered and self-seeking. And God says, I want you to know about the opposite. Right now, we are simply learning about this powerful, incredible thing called love. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is nicknamed the love chapter of the Bible. Incredible language, beautiful, beautiful language. I wonder if God wants you to have the most loving Christmas you've ever had. I wonder if the Holy Spirit wants to transform your life and make you into a more loving man, a more loving woman, more than you've ever been before, the opposite of what your natural inclination would be to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what we've been looking at, could easily be described as perhaps some of the most important words that have ever been written about love. It's been mentioned in previous sermons of Pastor Wally that the language is very beautiful, it's very poetic. Perhaps many of you, uh, when you got married, um, a lot of people get this scripture and they read the scripture about love at weddings. You'll hear it all the time at weddings. And the language is absolutely stunning. There's no doubt about it. In In a sense, you could almost read it and feel like it's a hallmark card that you've picked up. That's what it really is. And I'm sure that Corinth, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this is a letter to Corinth, this church, I'm sure that when they read it, they just felt wonderful, that they just were like, man, those, that's poetry, we get the warm, fuzzy feelings, this is really, really nice. Well, actually, it was the opposite. Their reaction to these words, I'm going to show you right now, has nothing to do with the nice, warm, fuzzy feeling. I'm going to show you how these words in 1 Corinthians 13 actually resembles a provocative slap in the face to the church. Maybe it'll challenge us too. The reason why Paul wrote this letter to Corinth is because they had some really serious problems going on in their church. If you can even fathom such a thing, brothers and sisters in Christ, people who love each other and love God, were battling against each other comparison had kicked in, and what had really transpired is you saw what's known as simply one-upmanship. I want to climb the ladder. I want to be higher, better, superior, more important than you, and if someone else is above me, then I've got to get a notch above them. And that's what was going on in the church, and actually, it had really become nasty, nasty stuff. So Paul writes this letter, and he points out three problems that they have. Number one is envy. He pens this actually over the course of several chapters. There's an envy problem in this church. 
Chapter 3 says this, you are still worldly. Paul is not being nice or complimentary when he says that. To be worldly, for Paul, is the opposite of being godly. It is the opposite of the direction of God's kingdom. He's not done. A little later he says, for since there is jealousy, other translations use the word envy. For since there is jealousy and envy and envy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? In other words, that's what everyone else is doing in the world. And you're doing the same thing. They'd become envious of each other, comparing themselves to each other, jealous of each other. And that had led in the family of God to little cliques and little groups and little, you're not a part of us and we're better than you and don't come. It's like back to middle school type stuff. In the family of God, all of that led to factions and divisions in the church. Problem number one, envy. Problem number two was boasting. Envy and then boasting. There's some bragging going on here. Chapter 3, verse 21. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. I like Apollos. I like Paul. This is what was going on. They were boasting about certain people, boasting about themselves. I love that in this church. I don't know that I've heard it once. You know, oh, that's my favorite worship leader. No, I like this worship leader. Pastor Wally and I, we have a bit of fun together, and we, we poke fun at each other a little bit, but I don't hear it. Well, I don't really like it when he speaks. I only like the other guy. All right, that's my favorite. Who needs that nonsense in the family of God? That doesn't build into anybody's life or ministry or for, or for the church family. But that's what was going on there. Then he asked the question, chapter 4, why do you boast? I know that this is going on. Then he simply makes a statement, chapter 5, your boasting is not good. Now, the word boasting is used plenty of times in the Bible, plenty of times in the New Testament. But for this letter right here to Corinth, it's used more than anywhere else to anyone else in the entire Bible. They're filled with envy, and now they're bragging and they're boasting about themselves. Number three, problem number three, they're puffed up. Envy, boasting, and they're puffed up. Now, that's not everyday language. I don't know the last time you probably used that in a sentence. But Paul has been really, really clear here. In fact, he says it one, one way, and then he kind of flips it on his head. He literally says this. If you are spiritually mature, then you won't be puffed up. But you're not spiritually mature, so you are puffed up. You're full of arrogance and pride. That's what you guys are. And he's very straightforward about it. Chapter 5. And you are puffed up. There it is. Can't go wrong with that. Chapter 8, but knowledge puffs up. So people coming into church, oh, I wonder if I can wear, learn something clever so that I can be clever. I can be smart, not just smarter, smart, but smarter than somebody else. And then 1 Corinthians 13 is all about love, and look what he references it with. He's only in chapter 8. Knowledge puffs up, right? Arrogance and pride. But love actually builds people up. And that's not what's going on here. You guys are like a balloon in Corinth. It's big and it's impressive on the outside, but you're full of hot air. And I'm going to poke a hole in this thing right now because it's full of arrogance and pride. Envy is something you do. Boasting is something you do. Puffed up is something you are. And Paul hits them with this problem that's going on. Actually, he does it again and again and again. And he's using this common language over these chapters. We've looked at about seven or eight chapters right there. He just says, you envy, you boast, you're puffed up. 
You envy, you boast, you're puffed up. He kind of repeats himself over and over, these three words again and again. And then finally we get to chapter 13, where we get to this beautiful poetic language, this warm, fuzzy feeling, incredible description of love. And it is remarkable. And Paul starts coming out with these sort of descriptions, and he starts coming out with these, like, if I had this in my life, and he, he says, listen, if I could speak in all the tongues of men, if I could speak in the tongues of angels, but I don't have love, man, that means nothing. That's meaningless. If I give everything I have, if I surrender my body to the flames, but I don't have love, man, that's rubbish. It's nothing. It doesn't mean anything at all. If I give all that I have away, if I have the gift of prophecy, he says, if I can fathom any mystery, anything in all of academia, if I could understand all of that, but I don't have love, I don't have anything. Really powerful. And then he comes into this incredible, incredible poetry, this language. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is gentle. And it's like, wow, you can just see Corinth listening to these words, sort of basking in it, letting these words kind of wash over them, these fabulous words. And then Paul brings the hammer down. In the midst of this beautiful poetry, he tells us the opposite. Verse 4, talking about love. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not puffed up. He just spent about eight chapters building this case, and he comes up here. He's talking to them about love. He's being incredibly direct. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It doesn't, it's not puffed up. Incredibly direct. Hey, Corinth, do you want to know what love is like? I'll tell you what love is like. It's not like you. That's what he's just done. It looks nothing like you guys, what you resemble. In fact, love is the opposite of you guys. And Paul is being incredibly deliberate here. In fact, he goes on to describe additional things that love is not like. He doesn't do this once or twice. He does it five times. He's like in their face. It's not like you, not like you, not like you, not like you, not like you. As repetitious as that was for me to just say that, they're getting that in detail in their face. He's not being spiteful. He actually loves them so much, he's willing to say the hard things so that they don't live a loveless life, so that they don't crumble as a community. Love is not about making people feel good, not if they're going to miss out on what matters most. Becoming a community that is opposite to the way that everybody else goes, to the way the world goes, That's the Jesus message. This Christmas, I want you to do the opposite. Your typical inclination, decisions, actions, thoughts, words, I want you to do the opposite. And look at this statement quite plainly. Love does not envy. That's what I want to lean into. Envy in a lot of ways is probably not your average little sin. I think envy is the opposite of love. A person who, a person of love is blessed and enhanced when somebody else has a sense of well-being about them. When someone else is doing great, if you're a person of love, you will be blessed by that. A person of envy, a person of envy, when they see someone else enhanced, they feel diminished. They feel belittled because someone else is doing well. One author puts it like this, 
nobody can get rid of envy by trying really hard to get rid of envy. Ever tried to do that? That is never the way of spiritual transformation. Envy can only be gotten rid of as it is replaced with love. When love is present, there simply is no room for envy to grow. And this is what Satan wants for you now in your life and in this Christmas and where you work and in your home and in with your friendships and in your relationships. Satan would say, I want to introduce envy into your life. I want to compound it. I want to reinforce it. I don't want you to be a man or woman of love. Here's what Satan would do to me. He would start by saying, Pastor Alan, compare yourself to other people. That's the root of it, envy. And so I would look around, and I would be filled with envy. People who are more athletic than I am. People who are smarter than I am. Guys who are better looking than I. I see maybe one or two today. Weightlifters, for obvious reasons. People who are better musicians than me. I would compare myself. I wouldn't be happy that they are better musicians than me. I would feel belittled by that. I would not love them because of that. People who are more extroverted than me. People who are better pastors than me. Better speakers than I am. Better leaders than I am. I would look at them and I would compare myself. Parents of perfect families with perfect children who go on perfect vacations and move, it seems, from success to success. People capable of getting a tan. Very envious of that. People who are great at confrontation and they don't sulk and they don't give you the, the, you know, the, the cold shoulder and they don't come into themselves. In fact, they don't get angry. They just become more articulate and they lean into that and they bring love where love is necessary. People who are movers and shakers with perfect jobs and perfect cars and perfect husbands and wives and perfect hair and perfect resumes and they just seem to have everything all together. People who never break a sweat and they seem to just have everything perfect. And if you're here today and you don't have a problem with envy, then I envy you. I envy you, but then, shh, don't tell anyone because I'm puffed up. I'm full of arrogance and pride. It's in me. It wants to find its way with me. And I pretend I don't envy people. I'm above envy. And then I boast. But I do it very, very carefully because I'm a pastor. I do it in ways that make me appear very humble, but I'm really not. I'm doing this like everybody else. Love does not envy. And I think it's very important as you look at this little passage here to understand that Paul, he's not barking at these guys. He's not giving them a list of to-dos and to-don'ts. He's not wagging his finger, stop that, stop that, stop that, cut that out, start doing this, do that, do, do the right thing. It's not what it is. He is simply describing love. He, des he is describing what love is, and he is describing what love is not. So if you take, for example, greed. Let's say that I, I'm a greedy person, and so I see somebody else, and, there's, and I look at them, and they're like, okay, they've got a great big pile of money. If it's greed, then here's what I say. I want a great big pile of money. Pretty simple, right? Now watch the distinction here. Envy comes in. It's another level entirely. Envy looks at someone else, and the comparison begins. And you look at this person. Okay, that person's got a great big pile of money. 
I want a great big pile of money and I want them to have nothing. I want them to be belittled and undone. I want what they have. I want more than they have and I want them to have less than me. It's another level entirely. I want you to be diminished. I want something bad to be true of you. It is the opposite of love. Look at this thread in the Bible. God lovingly comes up to Abraham and Sarah. At this time, their name is Abram and Sarai. God changes their name a little bit later. And he comes with this incredible covenant promise. He says to them, in your old age, you are going to have a baby, and that baby is going to be the beginning of a great people. It is a powerful and incredible covenant. But things don't seem to be panning out. And time goes by. And Sarah does what so many of us do. Hey, God, you seem to be doing a bit of a no-show here. That's okay. I got this. I can take care of it. Don't you worry about it. I know what needs to be done. I can take things into my own hands. And Sarah does that. Genesis 16. Talking about Sarah. She had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Church, is that true? No, it's not true. It's a lie. God said, I'm going to give you a child in your old age. And she is now believing a lie. And she's acting on it. God is not going to give me this child. He can't do it. He's impotent. He's incapable. He's gone back on his word. She's undermining the very character of God. And now look at how she acts on it. This is not going to go well. To her husband, go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abraham, being the dutiful husband that he is, says, okay, I guess I'll go and sleep with this other woman. What a stand-up guy, right? Watch where envy creeps in. It's not just a lack of kindness. Watch what happens here. The capacity, the desire to diminish the other person. Talking about Hagar. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to, desp to despise her mistress, Sarah. And then Sarah said to Abram, I love this. <laughs> Abram, you are responsible for the wrong that I'm suffering. That's a little debatable. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now watch Abraham's incredible leadership kicking in here. Unbelievably passive response. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. No leadership. Completely passive response from Abraham. Now, here's the outworking of envy. It has to diminish. Look at what it says. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, and she runs. So she fled from her. In the context of what was supposed to be wonderful, this amazing promise from God, this covenant, here we have one woman who is filled with jealousy and envy towards another woman. She is mistreating this other woman. Sarah has incredible power over Hagar. She is nothing but a slave. She's mistreating a slave. There's no telling what she could do to this woman, to this pregnant woman. What does this look like from God's perspective? He made Sarah. He loves Sarah. He gave a covenant to Sarah and her husband. He made Hagar. He loves Hagar. But now we have two women who are hurting and abusing and despising and wounding each other right in the middle of God's incredible covenant. It is the opposite of love. 
That's envy. And it's all over the Bible. It's all over our lives. Cain and Abel. Isaac and Ishmael. Jacob and Esau. Leah and Rachel. Joseph and his brothers. Miriam gets together with Aaron towards Moses. And if maybe you are, maybe you're not familiar with all those names, I promise you this. Those are not some side characters in the cast. These are the A-listers in the Bible. These are the heavy hitters of the most key dynamic events in the Old Testament. And it becomes incredibly violent because one person has to be diminished entirely. And then one day, a man named Jesus, he started a community where his plan was to do the opposite of envy. But nobody got it. I mean, nobody got it at all. Not the crowds, not the Pharisees, not his friends, not his family, not his disciples. His disciples, they just wanted greatness. They wanted to be on his right and on his left. Jesus wanted the opposite. And so he opens up his mouth, Matthew chapter 20. Whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. I don't know if you've got that right, Jesus. Are you sure? Nobody thinks like that. Nobody's functioning like that in life. Matthew chapter 9. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last. I think you've got your maths wrong, Jesus. That's not right. That doesn't make any sense at all. Who says this stuff? Nobody talks like that. Certainly not in Corinth. Certainly not in Rome. Certainly not in your work. Certainly not in your college. Certainly not in your neighborhood. Jesus speaks into this again, verse 28 of of Matthew 20, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Nobody does that. In other words, hey guys, here's the plan. Do the opposite. Do the opposite. Your every instinct is wrong. It's not really working out well for us here on planet Earth, is it? And it's been going on since forever. So let's just do the opposite. How about we make our lives a joyful exercise in giving ourselves away so that other people can be embraced and uplifted and built up and ennobled? How about we do that instead? How about we become the servants of all and we just give our lives away to other people? Same author from earlier. He says, you cannot stop envying by just trying really hard to stop envying. Spiritual maturity is not envy management. It's not through gritted teeth, repressing and stifling feelings so that you are miserable inside. But envy can only be removed by love. Where love is present, there is simply no room for envy to take root. It has to put roots down in a human heart. If that heart is a loving heart, there's no place for envy to get rooted. A few months ago, my kids were playing football. And uh, one of my kids... Um, scored a goal, and I was on the sideline, and one of the parents looked at me, and they knew that this was one of my kids, and they said, that was a great goal. Your kid scored a great goal. Great job, and I looked at that parent, and I said, thank you. Why did I say thank you? I didn't score the goal. I didn't have anything to do with it, and it had nothing to do with me. I wasn't even on the pitch. I was standing off the field sitting in a chair. 
Why did I say thank you? Because I have this bond with my child. That's my child. And I am that child's. They are in my family. And so, you see, when my child wins, I feel like I win. It's powerful. What would it look like in your life that when other people around you do well and when they succeed, that you just immediately rejoice? This is wonderful. What would it look like for you for when people around you are suffering that something inside of you would say, I'm actually suffering too. Instead, here's what envy will try to do in your life. We have rivals. We have people that we compare ourselves to. And if those rivals do well in life, we feel diminished and we feel less and we feel lost. And when our rivals fail, oh, we stand up straight. and We feel great. Look at them failing. This is wonderful for me. And Jesus says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For we are now one in Christ Jesus. That's it. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. I bet you take you two seconds to think of your rivals right now. Bring them to mind. What if your posture towards your rival were to change right now in his holy presence? Think of that person and you feel against them. Or it feels like they are against you. They are your rival. They are a source of comparison. What if love took the place of envy this Christmas? What if you just thought about them and what came into your heart was, how can I help them? How can I build into them? How can I love them? How can I serve them? How can I show them kindness? What if it was, how can I do the opposite of what I've always been doing? On a very human level, envy is actually why the cross happened. It said this in the New Testament, Pilate, it said he could see that it was out of envy that the chief priests handed him over to Pilate. Even Pilate could recognize it. Jesus was loved and followed and he was charismatic and he was influential and he had authority and he had power and he could teach and heal. And religious leaders, people a lot like me, they took no joy in Jesus Christ. Instead, they felt diminished. They felt less than. And then in their envy, they formed a plan to kill him. But Jesus had already formed a plan, and his plan was to kill envy instead. And Jesus decided, here's my plan. I'm going to be the object of the very worst that envy could possibly do. You think of that envy between Sarah and Hagar. And Jesus says, I'll take her place. I will become this mistreated slave. I will die the shameful slave crucifixion death. I will become obedient to that. It will be my blood that's spilled. And when your envy is spent to the nth degree, you will find that my love is only just beginning. And then I will go to the Father and I will say, would you forgive them for this envy? The cross, the place where you think you are defeating me, is the place where I will defeat envy by the power of love, holy, holy love. Jesus did what nobody else would do. He did the opposite. He didn't protect himself. 
He didn't avenge himself. He did the opposite. It was his whole life. God coming in the flesh. It's the opposite. God is spirit. A king in a manger. Kings don't go into mangers. It's the opposite. A savior on a cross. Heroes don't die. It's the opposite. The whole crazy story, the entire message of the Bible is just one big opposite. His crucifixion, he was lifted up and he comes into his kingdom with one condemned man on his, li- on his right and on his left. And envy, it killed and took one more victim. And he was dead. And he was buried. And normally, normally, the earth keeps its dead It always does that. It's universally, consistently true. The earth keeps its dead. But on the third day, the earth did the opposite. And it gave up its dead. And he was lifted up. And the tomb was empty. And love triumphed. And today we don't have to be puffed up. Because you are his beloved. Let's pray. Father, your word is amazing. I'm so thankful, God, for all that you teach us. I pray that this would be the most loving Christmas for every child of God in this place. I pray that we would become more loving sons and daughters, especially to rivals and comparisons and enemies. We have to say thank you for your love today, God. We have to say thank you for the gift of the cross. And I pray for every man and woman and child in this place that today they would be so flooded with your love that there simply would be no room for anything else to grow, no room for any other roots to take place. Love would just blanket their entire heart, God. Lord, would you help everyone in this room not to leave without a touch from you, even in this holy moment. The touch that simply bears this truth from your word and from your heart. I am loved by the living God. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus. And the whole church together said, Amen. What a good God we serve.